Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. It's amazing how the symbol of the cross has become a recognized symbol worldwide. Anywhere around the world, people see the symbol of the cross and even the non-Christians, they recognize that symbol as the symbol for Christianity. But you know what? Only the Christian now can know the true symbolism of the cross. And of course, we've been taught always that you look at the vertical beam of the cross and that lets us know about the love of God that's passed down when God literally came to earth and came to love us and give his life for us. And then we look at the horizontal beam and that talks about how we spread that Christianity and we spread that good news out to mankind. And so we've heard that and we think about that. But you know what? The most important symbolism and the one that I want us to concentrate on today when we look at the cross and when we look at the cross beam of the cross is to see the Lord, that it's representing the Lord literally standing with his arms outstretched to us. And that's the message of the cross. When he stretches his arms out and literally he's saying, come. That's the message of the cross. Now that's exactly what the cross is saying loud and clear. Now some people are being invited to come for the first time. There's other people who are invited to come because they've strayed away from the Lord and they need to come back. And then some of us just need to hear the Lord say, just come in close again. Come in. I, you're enjoying my presence, but just come in a little bit closer. And every time you see the cross, I want you to think about the symbolism of the Lord just with his arms outstretched and realize that that's exactly what Resurrection Sunday is all about. The outstretched arms of Jesus extending a love to us that we can't even possibly comprehend with our natural mind. And so for our Easter Bible study, I want us to look at the story of a prophet in the Old Testament who understood all about that kind of love. He had an understanding of love that many Christians on this side of the cross don't even understand. So I want to look at his life because it represents the resurrection love that God offered now through the resurrected life of Jesus. So if you'll turn to Hosea... Hosea lived now the last 40 years of the northern kingdom before they went into the captivity. And as a child, he would probably have even known Jonah. He would have lived, there probably would have been a little overlap there. He prophesied during the time of King Hezekiah, who was the king in Judah. He also prophesied when the northern king, Jeroboam II, and he was a contemporary of Isaiah. Now we talk a lot about Isaiah. But many times we don't think that much about Hosea. But the book of Hosea now is about four different things. It's about Israel's idolatry. It's about Israel's wickedness. It's about the coming captivity of Israel. And then most of all, it was about the fact that God loved Israel in spite of all of those things. In spite of the fact that she was wicked. In spite of the fact that she was in idolatry. And in spite of the fact that she fled away from God more often than she came to him. Now, Hosea is not only giving us a picture of God's love now for Israel, but it's also giving us a picture of his continuous love for all mankind. And that's why it's still relevant for us today. And there's so much in the book of, of Hosea. Now, I want you to look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. 
when I looked this up in the different reference books, I found that many of the scholars now believe that Hosea's wife, her name was Gomer, was not a prostitute when he first married her. But God knew what she was going to become, and so he told Hosea ahead of time. But he said, go and take her for a wife. Now, she probably just became unfaithful after the marriage, and her children then followed in her example. And the reason why many of the scholars believe that it was after the marriage that she became unfaithful is because when you think about it, this is a picture of Israel, and Israel became unfaithful after the covenant with God. And then, of course, all the descendants followed in that same pattern of unfaithfulness. But see, when she was first chosen, when God made covenant with Abraham, Abraham was faithful to God, started out being faithful. Now, Gomer was always running after other men, just exactly like Israel was constantly running after other gods. Now, even though Hosea knew ahead of time what Gomer was going to be like, God had foretold him what was going to happen, it still grieved the heart of Hosea every time that she strayed because he loved his wife very much. Okay, this is a picture. God said this is going to be a picture of the love that he had for his people. And, you know, so many times we don't think about the fact that when we sin, we don't think about what it's doing to the heart of God. But God is showing us through the book of Hosea that any time we sin, it literally devastates the heart of God and hurts the heart of God. Now, for God to compare Israel's unfaithfulness to the hurt that a man goes through any time his wife spurns his love, any time that she's unfaithful, any time she's in an adulterous affair, even after he's loved her and done nothing but try to bring good things to her. This lets us know the hurt that God endures even though God has done everything in his power to love us and to be faithful to us. It still hurts. Okay, I want you to look here in verse 2, in chapter 2. I want us to look at verse 2. Now, this is applying to Hosea's unfaithful wife. But remember, this is always symbolic of what God was trying to show us in the life of the Israelites. And so in verse 2, he said, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her face, her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like a desert land, and slay her with thirst. Okay, now, I want you to notice that the entire passage now is going to be based on the parallel between God's relationship to Israel and Hosea's relationship to Gomer. And when it's talking about the mother here, now symbolically, this is talking about Israel as a nation. And then when it talks about the children, it's talking about the individual Israelites. And so God is calling them, he called them the children of Israel. And so these Israelites, the children now, they were being urged to call their nation back to God, back to being faithful to God. And it's exactly the same today. God is calling us as individuals to call our nation back. You know, as a nation, we've gotten really far away from God. You know, they're trying to pull down the Ten Commandments. They're trying to take the name of God even off the coins. And yet, he's calling us as individuals, just exactly like he did back in the days of Hosea, to call our nation back. Now, in verse 3, Israel was told the consequences of her sinful ways. God tried to warn her. He said, you know, if you continue in this way, you're going to be stripped naked. And what he was doing, he was warning her, trying to get her to turn so that she wouldn't go into the horrible captivity. 
You know, Israel had no way of knowing how horrible that captivity was going to be. In the secular books, they say that they put hooks in their lip and then they would put hooks in the back of the one in front of them with a rope tied. And then if one would fall, it would pull the other down. You can just imagine the horrible thing that they had to go through. And then they were marched all the way into Syria. And this was a captivity that God was doing everything he could to get his people to turn and come back. And he was trying to expose their wicked ways so that they would be able to escape this captivity that was coming. And so in verse 5, it says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Okay, now Israel time and time again had ignored God. Israel had turned away from everything that God had done for her. She had worshipped idols, but God had said she's even giving credit to these idols for the blessings. And she was saying, you know, all of these, I'll go after my lovers because these are the things that they've done for me. They've given me my wool. They've given me my flax and my oil and my drink. Okay, now we've done the same thing in our nation. You know, God has poured out blessings on us. I mean, everywhere you turn, you see the blessings of God. And yet many times we have spurned his love and we've followed after our own desires. And many times we look around at all the blessings that we have in this nation and we think, look what I've done. You know, look what I've accomplished. Or look what our leaders have accomplished. And so many times we've done exactly the same thing that Israel has done, just exactly like Gomer was giving her lovers credit for all these things, all these blessings that she had in her life. And so we see then in verse 6, Therefore, behold, God said, I'm going to hedge up her ways with thorns. I'm going to build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. We look at this and we think, you know, God loved her so much that he was trying so hard to put even a hedge around her to keep her away from these pagan nations. Now, the hedge that he was putting around Israel was the fact that he had warned his nation, he had warned Israel, don't have anything to do with these pagan nations. Don't have anything to do with them. That was the way he was trying to hedge her up. Stay with me. He was keeping her separate. And yet time and time again, Israel pushed through the hedge. Time and time again, Gomer pushed through that hedge and went out after other lovers. And today, that's what God's saying to us. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't go to the places that's going to pull you away from me. Don't do the things. Don't watch the things. Don't listen to the things that will take your heart away from me. And then in verse 7, we find that just like Gomer got tired of pursuing her lovers and not ever being able to reach them, she finally decided that she would come back to Hosea. Okay, now in the same way, Israel would at times decide that she was better off with God rather than chasing after idols. And so there were times when she would repent and she would come back to God. And time after time, God would take her back when she repented. Okay, look down at verse 8. For she does not know that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its seasons. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. Okay, now... Verse 8 is telling us that the reason for Israel's unfaithfulness is that they didn't recognize that all their blessings were coming from God. They didn't realize that their grain and their wine and their oil and the silver and gold. 
And as a result of their turning away and not giving God credit for all these wonderful things, then when the grain came, when it ripened, it was taken away. When the wine, before it was even able to come to them, it was taken away. Now this was probably withheld because of a lack of rain. See, they were chasing after these gods of the harvest. And they were looking to the gods of the harvest and they were saying, this is why we are so blessed. And they found that the God of the harvest didn't work. They found that the God that they thought was sending all this rain, they saw that the rain didn't come. And they realized, hey, this is not working. And so in verse 10, and then God said, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of my hands. Okay, Israel's lovers, they came to the point where they despised her. They didn't want anything to do with her. And that's because no one was going to be able to snatch her out of God's hands. God said, this is my wife. This is my beloved. And in verse 11 then, Israel was no longer going to be able to enjoy. If you'll notice in verse 11, he said, I will put up an end to all of her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her festal assemblies. Okay, no longer was she going to be able to enjoy all of these activities, all of these things that she considered fun. Just exactly like Gomer now, no longer could enjoy all of the excitement with all of these other men. And see, the Bible tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season. But then after that, everything turns sour. That's what started happening in Gomer's life. Then God revealed something about his nature now in a very unique way. And so the next three verses that I'm going to read to you, these are a pivotal part of this story in the life of Hosea. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now mark this out in the margin of your Bible, verses 1 through 3. Because it said, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. Some of the translations will say for many years. You will not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. Okay, we're going to find that everything centers around these three verses. God tells his servant Hosea, he said, go back and take your unfaithful wife. Now this verse makes it very, very plain that the reason for God's difficult command to Hosea, that was hard for Hosea to do. But the reason for that is because God was illustrating through the life of Hosea how much love he had for Israel. That his love never failed, that it was always there. It was continually to bring her back, to bring her away from these other gods and to bring her back from all this lusting after these raisin cakes. Now, I think you'll notice when it talks in the Old Testament about raisin cakes, this is always talking about the idolatry and the worship of other gods. And so Hosea starts out now to find Gomer. Now, she's been out with all of her lovers, and then because she was hedged up, many times the lovers couldn't get to her, and because of that, then she just becomes destitute. Now, she's gone her wayward way. She's gotten into prostitution and degradation. So by the time that Hosea finds her, she has fallen so low that the scholars say that she was being sold on the auction block, just exactly like you would sell cattle today. 
And when he saw her, you can imagine what must have gone through his mind. The fact that she had done him so wrong and he was actually going to have to buy her back. But God had given him this commission. Now, can you imagine standing in a crowd with all these auctioneers getting ready to auction off your wife and standing there and seeing your wife on the auction block? You can imagine what was going through the heart of Hosea. You can imagine what he must have gone through when he heard the men in the crowd and they were standing around and I'm sure they were making all kinds of suggestive comments. I'm sure that they were eyeing his wife and deciding how much they were going to be willing to pay for her. You know, Jack and I have been to these cattle auctions and a lot of times you'll hear the men at the cattle auction and they'll be talking about the different cows that they see and which one they want to buy and how much they want to pay for them. And here Hosea is having to stand there and listen to all this going on when they're talking about his wife. And so you can imagine all the feelings that were going through him at this particular point. But what I'm wanting you to see is the analogy here that God was trying to make. I'm wanting you to picture this scene just a little further because see, we're made in God's image and he has exactly the same feelings that we have, exactly the same feelings that Hosea had. And so you can imagine now the shame and the humiliation and the disappointment that Hosea felt. But can you imagine that God feels the same shame, the same humiliation and disappointment when he sees his people strained from him? And that was the picture that God's wanting us to see. And anytime we go astray, that's what he, it's like he sees us there on that auction block. Now we can know that God feels all these things because this was his way of painting a picture so that we would know exactly what was going on in his heart. So we could know exactly what he was feeling and exactly how much he loved us. Now Gomer broke that covenant with Hosea. And that's just a picture of how many times the children of God, and especially in the Old Testament, they broke that covenant with God. And the times when we break covenant with God. So when the time comes now for Hosea's wife to be auctioned off, he reaches down in his pocket and he pulls out enough money to be able to buy her back. Now the price that he paid was 15 shekels of money and about 10 bushels of barley. Now this very possibly was all that he had because this is a picture of the fact that God gave all that he had, the very best that he had to be able to buy us back when he gave his son. And so we find then in verse 3 that he said, you will live with me for many years. Now I looked that up in that many years, that just pointed to an indefinite amount of time. And so he was wanting Gomer to know that this time he intended for their relationship to be indefinite. He was letting her know that, hey, we're not going to have any more of this strain. I'm calling you back. This time it's going to be indefinite. And he was requiring her then to renounce all of her adulterous ways. And that's exactly what God expects out of us when he calls us back. He expected that out of the children of Israel. When he called them back out of their adulterous ways, he expected them to come and to be with him indefinitely. And that's what God's saying to us today, that we're to renounce the world. We're to come back and be ready to put everything in the past behind us and move on with him every day, being closer to him than we were the day before. Now, Hosea thinks about the love that he has for his wife, and he sees her, and he feels this love, and he sees that it takes a special love for him to be able to be obedient to God, to be able to love her enough to buy her back. 
And so that lets us know then that is the whole theme that God's trying to put across. That he loves us so much that we cannot even imagine that kind of love. And I'm sure when God decided to express his love to Israel and express his love to us today, I'm sure there was no greater way that he could have expressed it than to show a man loving his wife enough to buy her back. Now the entire book of Hosea is about this great love of God for his children, even though over and over the heart of God has been cut to pieces, even as Hosea's was. Now, Hosea lived about 100 years before Jesus, so there was no way except through prophecy that he could have known that one day God was going to be doing exactly what God had called upon him to do. He had no way of knowing that one day, because of the cross of Christ, that God was going to buy back his unfaithful wife. Now, in chapter 6, verse 1, this is the response to God's rebuke. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the spring rain watering the earth. Okay, now this had to have been something that Gomer was understanding as she started coming back to Hosea. And Hosea was able then to understand exactly why God was calling him back. Even though they had been torn, he said he'll heal us. He's wounded us, but he'll bandage us. He will revive us after two days, raise us up on the third day. Now, even though God's prophesying to Israel, there's a message in this for us today because we're spiritual Israel. And anytime we return to God after we've allowed our sins to take over and we've been torn to bits, it's God who promises that he'll pull us back and he'll heal us. He'll bind up the wounds, the self-inflicted wounds, but he'll bind those up. And then we find here in verse 2, how prophetic it is when he says, then after two days, he's going to revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us and allow us to live in his presence. This was prophetic, God speaking, because after Jesus was in the grave three days, then he arose and on the third day, God did indeed restore us. And he did indeed make a way for us to live in his presence forever. Okay, in verse three, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the spring rain watering the earth. Okay, the entire theme of Hosea is God's love and Israel's rebellion. God's love and Israel's rebellion. And of course, we can see our rebellion many times in Israel's. And in verse 2 and 3, that's what Resurrection Sunday is all about, the fact that God's love never, ever once wavered. Okay, look in chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, at this point we're going to find now that Hosea is reverting back to give some of the early history of Israel. And he even pulled from the words of the Lord that the Lord spoke in Exodus 4, in verse 22 and 23, when Moses was talking to Pharaoh. And he said, Israel is my firstborn son, so let my son go that he may go out in the desert and worship me. And this also the fulfillment then of the prophecy of Jesus, where he said, out of Egypt I've called my son when he was a child and they took him into Egypt and called him back. 
Okay, look at verse 2. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to the idols. Okay, now God had multiplied the people of Israel. He had shown his power by bringing them into the land of Canaan. He had parted the Red Sea. He had taken down Jericho and all of these, these cities when he brought them in. And yet in spite of all the evidence of God's love, he showed them evidence after evidence after evidence of how much he loved them. And yet they still forsook God and worshiped the other gods. And so Hosea is going back and he's recounting all the times when they've done this thing over and over and over. And in verse 3, God said, Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cards of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. God said, in spite of all of these times when I loved them, when I showed my love and they spurned my love, in spite of that, he said, I'm the one who taught them to walk. I'm the one that took them in my arms. I'm the one that healed them. I'm the one that led them with the cards of human kindness. I'm the one who brought forth the bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. When I was doing research on the book of Hosea, they said that this showed the love of God equally as much as the book of John. And I thought, you know, as I went through this, you could see the love of God over and over and over, the love that was just being poured out to, to his children. And I thought, you know, you can just see the tenderness when God was talking about his children, how he would bind up their wounds and heal them. And there in verse 4, when he talks about the cards of human kindness and, and the ties of love that he was bringing to them. And then I loved the part when he said, and I bent down to feed them. That gives us a beautiful picture. You can almost see the Lord bending down just to feed, to feed Israel and to love them. This gives us a beautiful picture of his gracious love. It gives us such a picture of his provision, even though his people were certainly undeserving. And then in verse 5, it says, They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. So many times just feel like people think that God's sending all the bad things. God tried over and over and over to bring his people to him. And yet, in spite of that, he said they've chosen Syria. He's going to be the one to be their king. That's where they were going to be taken into captivity. Some people always blame God for sending evil. But God's saying that in spite of everything that he did, they refused to repent. And that's why Assyria then was going to rule over them. That's why Assyria was going to take them. The law of sowing and reaping came into being because they never, ever turned from their wicked ways. It's sad to me to think that in the northern kingdom there was not one good king. In all the years after the kingdoms divided, there was not one good king in the northern kingdom. Okay, look in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, God starts telling about Israel's future blessing because they've returned to come to him, even though he's given them chance after chance, then he says, okay, you're going to end up in Assyria. You're going to end up with the Assyrian king in command over you. But he still comes back and he says, but I'm going to tell you what your blessing is going to be in the future. He's still pouring out his love in spite of the fact that they never repented. 
He said, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphans find mercy. Okay, we find here that God so generously now is promising Israel that there's going to come a time when you're going to have final restoration. And he's offering them his unfailing love. And he's offering it to a faithless people. The Bible says even when we're faithful, his promises remain faithful. He remains faithful. And so in verse 1 now, God is reminding Israel of her sins. It's so important because any time we have God's forgiveness... Anytime God's forgiveness is going to come, there has to be an awareness of our sin. We have to come into an awareness to be able to repent and come back to him. And then in verse 2, we're not to return to the Lord now without bringing something. And so notice he said, take words with you and return to the Lord. So we're to bring our words. Okay, our words asking for forgiveness. And anytime we do, then God so graciously receives us back. See, the fruit of our lips is always going to be repentance and praise. That's always going to be the fruit of our lips. And then in verse 3, this is the acknowledgement now that there is no deliverance in anyone except God. And that's why he says Assyria is not going to save us. Assyria is not going to be able to help us because only in him, only in God, will there come any deliverance. And then he says, nor will we ever say again, our God, to the work of our hands. In other words, he said there's going to come a time when you're not going to take credit. You're not going to say that our God is the work of our hands, the things that we've accomplished for ourselves. He said the time's going to come. You will see me truly as the one who has always been there, who has always loved you. And then in response then to our repentance, in verse 4, God says, Then I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. It just amazes me how many times God comes and offers his love and offers his love and offers his love, and all he's doing is just waiting for people to repent and run back to him. And the moment that that happens, then he heals the apostasy. I'm going to love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Okay, then Hosea ends his book in a very unique way. In verse 9, he ends his book by saying, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble. In other words, will stumble at the words of God. And so God is showing us just so beautifully in the book of Hosea, his open arms, just exactly like we see on the cross. And as he, as he spoke of his open arms, speaking to the people to come, then when it came time for the cross, he demonstrated in action the fact that everything that he had proclaimed in the book of Hosea, he demonstrated it then on the cross. Now the cross demonstrates, first of all, his great love for us. And we need that love today just as much as they needed it back in the days of Hosea. But you know what? Modern man sees himself as so sophisticated that so many times that modern man thinks he can make it on his own. 
But did you know that there's just as much of an emptiness in man today, maybe even more so than there was back in the days of Hosea? That emptiness without God is still there. And I was reading where a Carl Menninger, he was the great psychiatrist, he said, it may sound surprising when I say on the basis of my own clinical practice as well as on that of my psychological and psychiatric colleagues that the chief problem of the people in the middle decade of the 20th century, that's when this was written, is emptiness. By that, I do not only mean that people do not know what they want, they often do not have any clear idea of even what they feel. When they talk about their inability to make decisions, when they talk about the difficulties which are present in all decades, it soon becomes evident that their underlying problem is that they have no definite experience of their own desires or their own wants. Thus they feel swayed this way and they feel the painful feeling of powerlessness because they feel vacant and they feel empty. And then another doctor, Robert Audrey, wrote basically the same thing when he said, I feel a dissatisfaction in the world. The average human being, as I judge it, is uneasy. He's like a man who's hungry, gets up in the night, opens the refrigerator door, doesn't exactly see what he wants because he doesn't know what he wants, and he closes the door and he goes back to bed. And then, of course, St. Augustine said there's a vacuum on the inside of man. There's a heart-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. And so what man wants and what he needs is something to fill that empty place inside of himself. And he has to fill that empty place with the knowledge, first of all, that there is a God. And then to know that that God loves him intimately, cares for him, and is standing there with open arms ready to receive him. And the moment that a person understands that, the moment that a person comes to see God in that light, then he will be drawn just exactly like a magnet to receive what the Lord has for him. Now, this is what the cross is all about. It's all about the open arms of the Lord. That's the total message of the cross. But that's not all that God wants us to see. Not only does the cross represent the matchless love of God, it also is demonstrating the invitation. And that's why I want us, every time we look at the cross, and especially this Easter, I want us to see that it's an invitation. It's constantly saying, come. Some may be closer to God than others, but it's still saying, come. And that invitation is to the rich, the poor, the evil, as well as the ones that the world would call good. The Marines have a slogan, and they say, only if you're good enough. You can only be a Marine if you're good enough. Well, thank goodness that's not God's slogan. I am so grateful that God's slogan is not only if you're good enough. I thank God that what God is saying is not if you're good enough, but he's saying, I have open arms for you, good or bad. Now, did you know that God sent out a letter to all the perfect people in the world? Did you know that God sent a letter to every perfect person in the world? Do you know what that letter said? You don't know what that letter said? Didn't you get your letter? <laughs> I didn't either. We don't, thank goodness. <laughs> But I'm so glad, I'm so glad that that's not the way it is, where he looks around and he finds the people who are perfect and sends letters and says, okay, you're welcome, you can come in. Thank goodness that regardless of who we are or regardless of what we've done, we can respond to the open arms of the Lord. Now the prodigal son went home not in his own merits. He didn't get to go home because he was good enough. He got to go home because of the open arms of the Lord.
of his father. And of course, that was representing the Lord. Now, whether we think we're good or bad, you know, some people think they're so bad and some people think they're so good. But you know what? The Bible tells us that we're all prodigals, <laughs> every one of us. We've all strayed away. And he's wanting us to see that the cross is for each one of us. It's a demonstration of his love and an invitation to everyone to come. But we can't keep it a secret. Now, if we really believe in this good news, then it's something we'd never keep to ourselves. It's something that we want to go out and we want to tell the world. That's why the joy that's in the heart of a Christian who has come to know the Lord in this way, that's why that joy is there that just spills over. It's just an automatic response to go everywhere we can to spread the good news. And we don't have to be intimidated by thinking, oh Lord, I don't know that I can do that. Because another picture that God gives of himself is the picture of the shepherd. And of course the shepherd's always out ahead of his sheep, leading the sheep. And we have been caught into a hostile world, but praise God, he's the good shepherd that he leads us and he's able to open doors that our initiative and our ability could never get open. Have you ever been amazed sometime at the people who will respond to you and you thought, oh my goodness, that's the last person in the world that I thought would have ever responded to the message that I had for them from the Lord. And yet it's because God is going ahead of us. It's his Holy Spirit that opens the door. Now they say that there's two kinds of Christians. There's the thermometer Christians and there's the thermostat Christians. And a thermometer now just simply reads the temperature but a thermostat controls the temperature. And so thermometer Christians now, all they're doing, they're just reflecting the world that's around them. They're reflecting their circumstances. But you know what? The thermostat Christians, they're the ones that are controlling. They're influencing their world and they're changing their world. And God's calling us to be thermostats and not thermometers. And I always love the story that we read of Johnny Appleseed where he was going all over the countryside in the early days of the frontier and he was spreading these apple seeds everywhere he went. That needs to be a picture that we see of ourselves where we're called to sow the seeds of the kingdom everywhere we go, spreading God's love, spreading the story of that was given so beautifully in Hosea, in the book of Hosea, so that young and old, saint and sinner alike will be able to hear that God has an everlasting love that never fails. Now, God demonstrated that love to us in his hands, in the nail prints in his feet, in the side. And we see the evidence of his redeeming love every time that we look at the cross, every time we come to the Easter season, that he was willing to pay that kind of price to buy us back. And you know what? There's no other death that could have demonstrated the open arms of the Lord any better than the cross, the crucifixion, because Christ's arms, as he died, were wide open to the world even during the crucifixion. And no other story could have demonstrated his love better than the story of Hosea and Gomer. So I want to challenge you now. I want to challenge you to meditate on these two things during this Easter season. I want you to meditate on open arms of the Lord. I want you to meditate, even read through the book of Hosea if you can, because the love of God that Hosea demonstrates, it's not just sentiment. It's rooted in the compassion, and it's, it's just bound up in the holiness of God. And God's love makes demands, but it's always willing to forgive. All he's waiting for is for us just to respond to the invitation that's being given. So Father, we just thank you for Easter. I thank you, Lord, that every year it's so wonderful to come and just reflect once again on how much you love us. 
Lord, I thank you that you gave us the story in Hosea because it, it's so easy sometimes to see things when we look at a situation in the natural. And it's easy to see what Hosea must have gone through with his wife, and yet he loved her enough. He bought her back and kept loving her. But Lord, help us that we will never stray away from the knowledge of this kind of love. I pray, Father, that every day of our lives, Father, that we will come to understand this kind of love more every day. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for that. Father, you've told us in the book of Hosea that you want us to come to know you and to understand that love. And so, Lord, I'm just asking, this is our prayer during this Easter season, that we will come to know you, to know that love, and to understand you like we've never understood before. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.